Welcome to Seed to Scale. We're four investors with backgrounds as founders who met at the engineering school at the University of Pennsylvania. Tim Young. Ahal Mehta. Hadley Harris. Vic Singh. We started ENIAC in 2009. With more than 80 years of combined experience building our own companies. We now lead seed rounds and bold founders who use code to create transformational companies. Starting a company from the ground up is really hard. In this podcast, we'll be having conversations with some of the most interesting founders, investors, and influencers. About the ins and outs of building an early stage company. We talk about it all. Funding, growth, and everything it takes to build a lasting business. This is Nahal Mehta. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Mike Maples. What I would recommend to anybody who wants to start a company is to start the type of company where if it works, it literally is your life's work. Some of you may know some of his investments, some small known companies like Twitter, Twitch, NGMoco, Weebly, Chegg, Bizarre Voice, Okta, Demand Force, and many others. Uh, but many of you may not know he's also been an amazing founder and operating executive back-to-back startup IPOs, including Tivoli and Motive. Really happy to have Mike on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on of your course. show. And, you know, I think maybe you could give a, a quick background of, of your journey, how you kind of started, you know, on the other side of the table and what led you to investing. Yeah, I guess I, I got started as an entrepreneur in, in a junior high school. So um, the Apple II came out and then later the IBM PC and I started writing video games uh, and got really interested in computers. And at the time, I never really thought it'd be a business. I thought it was more of a hobby. And because I was a computer guy, I went to Stanford undergrad and then I um, and then I got my MBA at Harvard Business School and after that, I started to get involved with startups directly. So I was at the startup team of a company called Tivoli Systems, which went public in 1995 and was acquired by IBM. And then I um, started a company with some friends called Motive that went public in 2004. I just got interested in the idea of investing uh, because I, I, I didn't think I had another startup in me at the time. I was pretty tired. I thought if I invested it would be a good opportunity to sort of be forever young. And so uh, I just thought it'd be a good way to stay close to startups without going through all of the near-death experiences and experiencing it quite as viscerally as I had before. And, you know, what was the transition like for you? Uh, It sounds like you didn't miss operating very much uh, after you left, but, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I always say like, you know, investing early stage is, kind of get like the best parts of operating without having to fire that many people, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the, there, were, um, there, there was a book that really influenced my thinking early on as an investor. Uh, there were really two. One was called uh, Fooled by Randomness by Nassim mm-hmm. Taleb. And the, the other was a, a book called The Wealth of Networks by Yohai Bankler. And Fooled by Randomness was just the right book for me to read at that time because Taleb tends to like to make fun of people who are too confident in their knowledge. And I think that, that a lot of being a good investor is understanding that we don't know as much as we think we know. And actually we practice randomness and we, what we need to do 
as practitioners of randomness is make randomness mm -hmm. our friend rather than something to avoid or something to be scared of. But conversely, we need to understand that we don't have a monopoly on truth and that it's easy, even in hindsight, to not really remember how things happened it, it, for real. And so uh, that helped me kind of approach the topic of investing with a little bit of humility, uh, which is, you know, a failure mode of a lot of early VCs is they want to relive former glories as yep. an entrepreneur. And they think that the way they did it is the right way. And, you know, a lot of a lot of success in entrepreneurship is situational and luck and a whole bunch of things that are kind of a, heart, a little bit ephemeral. And then the wealth of networks was helpful for me because it, it helped me understand that my primary goal was to invest in the future networks that would bring abundance to the world and that the corporation as an entity was going to yield in the future to the network as an entity. And that if I could get ahead of that trend and sort of be thoughtful about where will the valuable networks of the future be built, then maybe I maybe I could have a chance to invest in some good corporations and ahead of some of the other. <clears throat> awesome. So, you know, obviously you, you've had a lot of amazing, incredible investments, you know, Twitter, very early days, Twitch, very early days, et cetera. There must be a common thread with some of these founders, right? Like VC is a lot of pattern matching. And when you look in the eyes or we say the souls of these founders, like what, what have you found like in common, you know, between the, the companies that have realized, you know, there's a billion dollar plus valuation potential and, and, and companies you think that are, that are on their way. There's only a tiny fraction of founders who are able to build these amazing breakout companies that truly move the needle for society. And um, very often these founders encounter a lot of obstacles. You know, Lyft, when we launched it, we weren't sure if it would be legal and we had to encounter resistance, you know, in all the cities that we launched in, in the early days. And so the, the founders that, that I really enjoy working with, they have mission clarity and care about accomplishing a goal that's bigger than just them. Uh, they, you know, they want to start a movement and not just a company. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and then the other thing I've learned is that I don't, when, it, when an entrepreneur comes in and pitches me and says, we're going to disrupt something, um, that bugs me because the, the great entrepreneurs I've met are trying to do something awesome that brings abundance to the world. They're not trying to disintermediate anybody. They're not trying to disrupt anybody. You know, those are, to me, those are business jargony buzzwords rather than mission clarity. Mm -hmm. And so, so I try to find these prime movers who are building these movements that will bring abundance. And then I try to act more like a co-conspirator than an investor. Uh, and so that's, that's just kind of how I look at it. That's what I'm in it for. And I, I like to be working with the founders when the world doesn't believe yet. And I like to be working with the founders when the chips are down or when, you know, everybody says this is stupid uh, because I like to be in on a secret with them. And then if, if it turns out that we're right about the founders and the founders are right about their mission, then uh, it could get pretty exciting. You know, you, you actually gave an amazing talk uh, at a conference we had a couple of years ago and uh, there's, YouTube videos of, 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 of this talk you've given, I think at Stanford and a few other places on the concept of, of kind of thunder lizards. And how does that reconcile or how is that different than, than prime movers? 
Yeah, so the, the um, Thunder Lizard was a metaphor that um, that I used that some people got a kick out of. You know, I like to say that um, a great startup is like a capitalist mutation. And so the, when, I, when I started to use the term Thunder Lizard, it was a metaphor that tied back to Godzilla. And mm -hmm. uh, for those in your, in your audience who haven't seen Godzilla, you know, Godzilla was hatched from radioactive atomic eggs and swam across the Pacific Ocean, growing uh, as he became more and more mutated. And then he emerged with an attitude and began breathing fire on buildings and uh, eating train cars like they were sausage links, and swiping holes in things and, you know, just generally generally making, uh, you know, a bunch of noise. Yep. And so, like, I think of my job is to spot the mutation when it's still in the atomic egg state. Uh, and, and so I don't always know how the company might mutate or what direction, but I need to believe that it has the potential energy to be something really big if it works. Yep. And so, so that's kind of, you know, my raison d'etre and, uh, you know, spot the thunder lizards before they hatch. Yep. You built an incredible firm over the years, you know, five partners and obviously, you know, a bunch of other folks kind of supporting, but, you know, five partners of which, you know, three are people of color, two are women. You know, obviously we are hearing a lot about diversity in our industry that is typically not very diverse. Uh, and you've built your team in, a, in an incredibly diverse fashion. Can you maybe talk about maybe how you and Ann met or, or how, how you built this team and, and maybe, you know, your thoughts on, on diversity and kind of maybe even what's happening in technology right now? So in the early days, when I was in business school, before I was ever involved directly in startups, I noticed that we got graded uh, largely on class participation, which is, which is fine. But, but the other thing I noticed was that very often in business, people try to like command a room or they try to get their agenda across or they try to, you know, make the case for their point of view. And what I, what I found was that in many of those cases uh, it became ego driven in terms of how decisions got made. And, I, you know, I like to say that ego is about who is right and truth is about what's right. And so I thought, okay, what would it look like to create a business and a culture where truth seeking was the primary goal? And, um, you know, I, I believe that when you have gender and intellectual diversity, you're more likely to get there. Mm. And so, you know, like we have this saying inside our building, we say, seek truth over tribalism. And, you know, we, we tend to identify ourselves as members of all sorts of tribes, you know, our families, political parties, race, gender, uh, social organizations, go Giants, go Mets, you know, uh, and, and so like tribalism isn't just an aspect of the human experience. It's kind of the default human experience. Yep. But the, but the problem, the, the problem with naturally going to tribalism when we're confronted with hard choices is that it can get in the way of a clear eyed view of the truth. And so I wanted, I wanted to have gender and ethnic diversity because it felt like it was the right thing to do. But I also felt like it would contribute to a style and an approach to how we did business and how we treated each other and how we made decisions that would give us a competitive advantage. And I, I thought someday when I retire, uh, I'd like to have returns, you know, that are in the league of benchmark and Sequoia, but that we sort of did it with uh, a gender and ethnically diverse team 
and that, that would cause other people to, to say, well, we, we got to be more like those people or we, we're not going to win in the future. Mm. And so, you know, we'd say just win, baby, uh, you know, inside the building. Um, <laughs> the, our, our main goal is to be authentically real in our approach to diversity and have it be a competitive advantage and just sort of j just win, baby. Awesome. It, yeah, yeah. And, and there are a couple of subtle ways in Hall where I think that uh, this can manifest itself. So, for example, in a lot of in a lot of firms, if you've got or in a lot of companies, if, if it's too testosterone driven, you get into these meetings and debates where people want to have the last word mm -hmm. or they want to, like, position somebody's argument in one way versus the other way. Whereas, like, if you're if you're really a truth seeking culture, you want it. You want to be the kind of place where you make a point and then 30 seconds later, you're kind of like, hey, you know that thing I just said 30 seconds ago? I don't think I know what I was talking about there. And like, I've found that if you have more diversity, uh, very often that that feels like a safer place to, to do that. Or, you know, another example would be, let's say that you're about to make a decision. You're about to hire somebody. You're about to re release something. You're about to launch something. And at the very end, you're just like, you know what? I just got the heebie-jeebies. This doesn't feel right to me. Hmm. In too many companies, they'd say, well, you know, the process is the process and you should have raised your hand earlier. But it, to me, in a truth-seeking culture, you say, hey, look, it's, it's, it's okay to, to sneak up on the truth whenever you sneak up on it. And you want to be the kind of place where if something doesn't feel right, you always feel safe to raise your hand and say, look, I'm, I'm pulling the cord here. And I, I might be wrong to pull the cord, but I don't want to hide anything. And I don't want to feel, I don't I want to let something that feels not right pass. Yep. Love it. Thank you on behalf of, of the community and the industry. Can I just say one more thing to your founders out there? Sure. Um, life is going to go fast, like faster than you ever know. And, um, it's, it's tempting sometimes to fall into the trap of just doing a startup, but that's not the path, right? The path is to do something that you think is gonna be sort of the expression of your life's gift to the world. Mm -hmm. And you don't have many chances to do that. And so um, I guess what I would recommend to anybody who wants to start a company is to start the type of company where if it works, it literally is your life's work. And that, you know, your startup is the only startup that you're all in and that you're pursuing a mission bigger than yourself that you'll fight for that you would do even if you couldn't raise the money. Uh, and if you, you know, if you if you do something like that, um, you know, you'll you'll get to enjoy it twice because you'll get to relive what it was like to do that. Mm. Um, but like when I've seen founders in their wheels, it's when they felt like it was the right time to be an entrepreneur, but they weren't called to do something that they thought was the greatest thing that they could do in their life. Very well said, Mike. Thank you very much uh, again for your time uh, and your amazing wisdom. We, we really appreciate it. And, uh, and thanks for joining us on Seat to Scale. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.